my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. According to the report which they submitted then, the Chinese Foreign Minister Chao Enlai had invited them all to a party when they arrived and formally introduced them to the Chinese representatives. But as soon as the first meeting began, the chief Chinese representative produced a draft agreement containing 10 articles ready-made. This was discussed for several days. Our delegation argued that Tibet was an independent state and produced all the evidence to support their argument, but the Chinese would not accept it. Ultimately, the Chinese drafted a revised agreement with 17 articles. This was presented as an ultimatum. Our delegates were not allowed to make any alterations or suggestions. They were insulted and abused and threatened with personal violence and with further military action against the people of Tibet. And they were not allowed to refer to me or my government for further instructions. This draft agreement was based on the assumption that Tibet was a part of China. That was simply untrue and it could not possibly have been accepted by our delegation without reference to me and my government, except under duress. But Ngabu had been a prisoner of the Chinese for a long time and the other delegates were also virtual prisoners. At last, isolated from any advice, they yielded to compulsion and signed the document. They still refused to affix the seals which were needed to validate it, but the Chinese forged duplicate Tibetan seals in Peking and forged our delegation to seal the document with them. Neither I nor my government were told that an agreement had been signed. We first came to know of it from a broadcast which Ngabe made on Peking radio. It was a terrible shock when we heard the terms of it. We were appalled at the mixture of Chinese clichés, vainglorious assertions which were completely false and bold statements which were only partly true. And the terms were far worse and more oppressive than anything we had imagined. The preamble said that over the last 100 years or more, imperialist forces had penetrated into China and Tibet and carried out all kinds of deceptions and provocations and that under such conditions the Tibetan nationality and people were plunged into the depths of enslavement and suffering. This was pure nonsense. It admitted that the Chinese government had ordered the People's Liberation Army to march into Tibet. Among the reasons given were that the influence of aggressive imperialist forces in Tibet might be successfully eliminated and that the Tibetan people might be freed and returned to the big family of the People's Republic of China. That was also the subject of Clause 1 of the agreement. The Tibetan people shall unite and drive out imperialist aggressive forces from Tibet. The Tibetan people shall return to the big family of the motherland, the People's Republic of China. Reading this, we reflected bitterly that there had been no foreign forces 
whatever in Tibet since we drove out the last of the Chinese forces in 1912. Clause 2 provided that the local government of Tibet shall actively assist the People's Liberation Army to enter Tibet and consolidate the national defense. This in itself went beyond the specific limits we had placed on Ngabe's authority. Clause 8 provided for the absorption of the Tibetan army into the Chinese army. Clause 14 deprived Tibet of all authority in external affairs. In between these clauses, which no Tibetan would ever willingly accept, were others in which the Chinese made many promises. Not to alter the existing political system in Tibet, not to alter the status, functions and powers of the Dalai Lama, to respect the religious beliefs, customs and habits of the Tibetan people and protect the monasteries, to develop agriculture and improve the people's standard of living, and not to compel the people to accept reforms. But these promises were small comfort beside the fact that we were expected to hand ourselves and our country over to China and cease to exist as a nation. Yet we were helpless. Without friends, there was nothing we could do but acquiesce, submit to the Chinese dictates in spite of our strong opposition and swallow our resentment. We could only hope that the Chinese would keep their side of this forced one-sided bargain. Soon after the agreement was signed, our delegation sent a telegram to tell me that the Chinese government had appointed a general called Cheng Chin Wu as their representative in Lhasa. He was coming via India, instead of the long overland route through eastern Tibet. Yatung, where I was staying, was just inside the Tibetan border on the main route from India to Lhasa, and so it was clear that I would have to meet him as soon as he set foot in our country. I was not looking forward to it. I had never seen a Chinese general and it was a rather forbidding prospect. Nobody could know how he would behave, whether he would be sympathetic or arrive as a conqueror. Some of my officials, ever since the agreement had been signed, had thought I should go to India for safety before it was too late and it had only been after some argument that everyone agreed I should wait until the general came and see what his attitude was before we decided. Some of my senior officials met him at Yatung. I was staying in a nearby monastery. There was a beautiful pavilion on the roof of the monastery and we had arranged that I should meet him there. He insisted in Yatung that he and I should meet on equal terms and we got over any difficulties of protocol by providing chairs of equal merit for everybody instead of the cushions which were the custom of Tibet. When the time came, I was peering out of a window to see what he looked like. I do not know exactly what I expected, but what I saw was three men in grey suits and peaked caps who looked extremely drab and insignificant among the splendid figures of my officials in their red and golden robes. Had I but known 
The drabness was the state to which China was to reduce us all in the end, and the insignificance was certainly an illusion. But when the procession had reached the monastery and climbed up to my pavilion, the general turned out to be friendly and informal. The other two grey-coated men were his aide and his interpreter. He gave me a letter from Mao Zedong which more or less repeated the first clause of the agreement by welcoming us back to the great motherland, a phrase I had already come to detest. Then he said the same thing all over again through his interpreter. I gave him tea, and an observer who had not known what was in our hearts might have thought the whole meeting was perfectly cordial.